And would you please stand with me today as we read the Holy Gospel. Our Gospel reading today is taken from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, reading verses 7 to 14. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hellfire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father, who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh God, our gracious Father, we pause and we, we sit before the matchless majesty of your word. And we sit here dependent upon your Holy Spirit, the author of this book of life, to make its meaning plain to us, and to give us power both to hear and to do. And so we pray, O God, that you would so move now through your word into our lives that that great double-edged sword would pierce deeply even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joint and marrow, and that you would discern, O God, the thoughts and the intents of our hearts this day. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, today we're going to speak, I'm going to speak today, on the, uh, the parable of the lost sheep. And it's the last of our series on the Lord's parables this summer. And I think that it's a fitting place for us to conclude. At the beginning of our chapter today, we didn't read it of Matthew 18, Jesus calls a small child this, this uh, small, small child in the Greek, into his circle of disciples. And he begins to expound to them upon the nature of the kingdom of God once again. The child here becomes the icon of the true believer in the child's humility, the complete indifference to the worldly pursuit of status and prestige, of wanting to be recognized and promoted, of wanting to be admired, the complete absence of all those things. In this, Jesus locates the true image of the true believer. Unless you're like this, he says, you cannot be part of my kingdom. And then Jesus moves on to describe what a terrible, dangerous thing this world is for such believers. It's a place, he says, that is fraught with temptation. Woe to the world, we read today because of these temptations that are present in this sphere, these traps 
laid to lead men and women and children away and way away from their eternal happiness in God. And these temptations to sin, these agents, these opportunities to chill our hearts and to deaden our affections for the living God are so prevalent in our world and they're so dangerous that Jesus recommends the most extreme measures to avoid them. And there's no getting around the shocking violence today of what Jesus says to us, metaphor and hyperbole notwithstanding, there's just no getting around what he says. If your hand or your foot is leading you into sin, cut it off, he says. If your eye is looking at things it shouldn't look at, if your eye is prompting you to scorn the word of God, then pluck it out. And we're left as readers with this, you know, if we're reading the text honestly, we're left with this disturbing and grotesque image of the disciple standing there all bloodied, hand cut off, foot missing, eye plucked out of its socket. And you get the point of what Jesus is saying to us this morning. Jesus says to us, such is the wickedness of sin. Such is the deadliness of rejecting God's word that it's far better to be disfigured in this life to, than to give in to the temptations of the world and to risk a far greater and more eternal disfigurement. Jesus says, such is the wickedness of sin that hardening your heart towards God is infinitely more grotesque than this picture that I am painting for you. And so there's no denying today that Jesus describes this Christian life in terms of a great fight. The world, he says, is teeming with temptation to forget God. Life, says Luther, is nothing but combat and struggle against sin. And what makes it all the more deadly and all the more dangerous is the location of the temptation. And you'll notice what Jesus does here, that even though he warns against tempting others to sin, he concludes by emphasizing the tempter within. He doesn't say, if your neighbor's hand or your neighbor's foot leads you to sin. No. He says, if your hand, if your foot, if your eye. How simple it would be if all of the temptations out there, if it was just the wicked white witch and that gorgeous Turkish delight and Fenris the wolf, but all the temptations were just out there, how simple it would be if all of it was outside the vaulting walls of my trustworthy self and I could rely on me to combat all these things. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Amidst all of these very real external temptations, the threefold lusts of the world, as St. John talks about, the, the arrows and the darts of the evil one, as Paul describes them in Ephesians, amidst all these, the great problem of the Bible is that I have an enemy within. And in a world that so ostentatiously rejects the word of God. In that place, our own hearts, as Calvin writes, are factories for the production of idols. We churn out. With the regularity of an assembly line, we churn out mass irreverence. We produce mass impiety and ungodliness, and we produce lukewarm hearts. 
And the higher and the deeper and the wider a man or woman of faith proceeds in this life, the more painfully they will discern this to be true. Paul himself, even though he can admit that in his inner man, he delights. He delights after the law of God, which, by the way, is not a quality of the unbeliever. Even though God has transformed me, he says, to delight in his law, I find another principle at work that wars against my renewed mind. And so Paul found himself doing things that he didn't want to do. I don't do what I want to do, he writes, but I do the very thing that I hate. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? My brothers and sisters, if you've walked sincerely with the Lord for any distance and you found yourself in Matthew 18 and you found yourself in Romans 7 with hands and with feet and with eyes that betray you and that betray your Lord, you found yourself in a terrible battle with humiliating, at times, defeat. And grace has led you and grace will lead you to confess with the apostle, I know that in me, that is in my lingering, resident, sinful nature, no good thing dwells. And that is a good and a right and a needful confession. And what a helpful thing it is for us as a church to routinely be able to confess just this very thing. C.H. Spurgeon, writing on the Anglican prayer book, writes this, he says, what a splendid, General confession is that in the Church of England prayer book. And then he quotes it. We have erred and we have strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have done those things we ought not to have done. And we have left undone the things that we ought to have done. And there is no health in us. There is not, right Spurgeon, a finer confession in the English language. And it's so splendid. And it's so fine because of its biblical realism. There is no health in us that is in me. In me, there dwells no good thing. Woe to the world because of the presence of temptations to sin. Temptations within and temptations without. But if Jesus left us there, with this visceral, very visceral image of combating sin, if he left us with only our responsibility to cut and to hack and to work and to sweat against our corruption, then I have to admit, I find no gospel there. There is no good news in the message that I just have to work harder. I have to cut deeper. I have to hack more mercilessly at my abiding corruption. Eustace tried very, very hard, did he not, to claw away those scales from off of his back, but he could not go deep enough because taking off one layer of dragon scales, he would just find another, and Eustace finds himself in utter dismay. Oh, wretched dragon that he was. But you notice that Paul doesn't say, oh, wretched man that I am, what shall I do to combat this indwelling monster? No. What, not what, but who? Who shall save me? And what a wonderful thing it is then that Jesus concludes this teaching on sin and temptation coming to us, 
clothed in his gospel by giving us the parable of the ninety and nine. And this parable, the ninety-nine, was the same story that brought D.L. Moody to tears one night as he listened for the very first time to his music companion, Ira Sankey, putting the parable to music. And as tears were streaming down Moody's face, he heard Sankey sing these words. There were 99 that safely lay in the shelter of the fold, but one was out on the hills away, far off the gates of gold, away on the mountains wild and bare, away from the tender shepherd's care. Lord, thou hast here thy 99. Are not they enough for thee? But the shepherd made answer, this is mine. He's wandered away from me. And although the road be rough and steep, I go to the desert to find my sheep. But none of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters he crossed, nor how dark was the night the Lord passed through ere he found his sheep that was lost. My brothers and sisters, there's not one of us here today who has not been part of this number. The sheep who has gone astray. We were born into this life estranged from God and even having been made the children of grace and having a new nature, the gift of God that loves the Lord more than anything else, we find ourselves lured away into these dark mountains, the place where our affections for God cool, where the place where our thoughts of God become small, the place where our love for our brother becomes weak, and where we do those things that we know we ought not do. And in that dark place, cutting and hacking aren't enough. Strenuous effort isn't enough. Moral determination isn't enough. It's too dark. And we are too lost, and there is no getting back on our own. What we need is to hear the sound of our shepherd's feet climbing up towards us. What we need to hear is the sound of our shepherd's voice calling our name. What we need in those moments is the comfort of his staff, which is, is the assurance of his gospel. I will rescue you, he says. I will deliver you, he promises. I will find you, he says, and I will do this Always, there is no darkness that can keep me from you. There is no sin that can separate you from my love. There is no crookedness in your heart that can separate you from my divine plan for your life. It is not my will that you should perish, he says. Your weak will may betray you. Your weak may, will may lead you aside. But my will has been to rescue you before the foundation of time itself. It is not my will that you should perish. Tell me, right Spurgeon, how far do you think the Savior will go to rescue you from your sin? Go, he says, beyond the most remote star, and I say that he will go even further still. He will save you to the uttermost. And it is his joy, our parable says today, to do so. My brothers and sisters, the Lord delights to save you. 
He doesn't do it grudgingly. He doesn't do it as if you owe him something. It is our Lord's joy to save. It pleased the Lord, we read in Isaiah 53, to bruise his Christ. And so the Puritan John Flavel writes, surely the mind of God was infinitely set upon the recovery of lost sinners. Earthly parents whose love to their children is but as a drop in the ocean compared to the Father's love for Christ. And they will follow their children to their graves with many tears, especially when they die violent deaths. And yet we read this. The Father delighted in the barbarous death of his son and in the bleeding of his precious head because it worked the salvation of his people. Friends, Flavel writes, what manner of love has the Father loved you with? For the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross and he scorned its shame. And the Lord pursues you today and he pursues your loved ones with this plan of joy. Doesn't that put new meaning into the words? The joy of the Lord is my strength. The delight in God to rescue me. The joy in God to save me gives me the grace to pluck and it gives me the grace to hack, and it gives me the grace to cut and to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, because I know what he in his joy is working within me. And so my brothers and sisters, I invite you today to sup at the table with me. I invite you today to enter into the Lord's joy for your life and to receive his health for your sickness, his wholeness for your brokenness, his straightness for your crookedness, his riches for your poverty, his light for your darkness, his righteousness for your sin. I invite you today to the great exchange. He delights to give these things to you this day. In the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen.